Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is When God Gives Us What We Want by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, we thank you for all you've done for us and for all that you will do. We ask this morning, Lord, that as we come around your word, that, Lord, you would open our hearts and open our eyes to see more of Christ, we ask in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in Romans chapter 1. We'll continue working our way through Romans chapter 1. But what brings us to where we are today, I want to talk about what happens when God gives us what we want. And I want to to throw a quote out there by a guy who wasn't necessarily overly spiritual, but it was one that grabbed me recently, and it was by a, a guy by the name of Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde says that when the gods really want to punish us, they answer our prayers. And today we're going to look at four of, most definitely four of the most scariest words in chapter one, but also, I feel, some of the the scariest words in the New Testament I want to have a look at this morning. But what brings us to where we are, just briefly recapping, we know that uh, the book of Romans is the message of the gospel from chapter 1 to chapter 16, Paul writes and unpacks what it is that the gospel is. Of course, he begins in the first three chapters by highlighting what the human nature is really like, exposing what our human sinful condition outside of Christ is really like. But before we get there, we have a look at uh, verses like, I am not ashamed of the gospel and what it looks like to live unashamedly for Jesus. We, we understood that in verse 17, there was a, I don't know how many people here know of Martin Luther, but Martin Luther was a, was a German monk who posted the, the 95 thesis on the door of the Catholic Church, some 1519, I think it was. Uh, and Martin Luther had a light go on in his mind. He was a guy who, who thought that righteousness was God saves me and now God's righteousness is the standard he imposes on me to uphold. Somebody said to Martin Luther, do you love God, Martin? And Martin says, love him. He says, I loathe him for putting this burden on me that I have to uphold this. But it got to such a point for Martin Luther where uh, he, his wife, an ex-nun, that's another story, but his wife, who was an ex-nun, uh, he got so depressed she would hide the knives in the house. But the end of Martin Luther's life saw a return to a joy that was inexpressible because a light bulb went on when he realised that the righteousness of God is not a standard that we have to, in our own strength, uphold. He realised that the righteousness of God was the standard of Jesus imposed upon each one of us that accept him. It's kind of like the resume that opens doors. You know, it's, it's our resume, says Martin Luther, basically, our resume is we have no qualifications to hold any position before God, but the righteousness of God is Jesus gives us his resume. What a beautiful truth that is. But then Paul, Paul goes on and begins to expose the human condition and God's wrath on unrighteousness. Today, I'd like to pick it up in verse 24. Verse 24, Paul says, therefore. Now, whenever you come to a, a point in scripture where there's a therefore, we have to pause long enough to ask, why is it therefore? 
Why has Paul done this? Why has he used the word therefore? He is, he is referencing everything that he has just said. Uh, he now wants to build on his argument, but he wants to do so on the grounds of everything that he's just said. And everything that we've covered starts basically in verse 18, where he says the wrath of God is being revealed. The wrath of God, and we understand that everybody outside of Jesus is under the wrath of God. That's what Paul wants to make known. And the best way to understand that is uh, we all know the story of Noah. And, and God decides that uh, because of the condition of man's heart, God says, I'm going to bring judgment. And he brings a flood on the earth, but he provides an ark for Noah and his family. And if we fast forward many hundreds of years, God has once again provided an ark and his name is Jesus. And if you are inside Jesus, just like Noah when he was inside the ark, if you're inside Jesus, you are safe from the wrath of God, just like Noah and his family was. But the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven because everybody has a knowledge of the truth, but they suppress it. We live in an age that desires to suppress the truth. That's what Paul says. We're going to have a look at the word truth today and we're going to have a look at somebody who claimed some truth recently that doesn't appear to be very true at all. But suppressing the truth is taking the fact that it is obvious that there is a knowledge of God. Paul says you can't be without, you're, you're without excuse before God because everything in this created order tells us that somebody has to be behind all of this. Paul says you're being ignorant. It's actually called unrighteousness. It's you want to do away with God, but because you can't do away with God, I'm going to live like I have. There was a Brisbane band that sang a famous song called God's Not Dead. Amen. A Brisbane band called Newsboys. And if you're listening, we'd love you to come and do a concert sometime. <laughs> but we understand that Everybody has suppressed the truth. We have a knowledge of God. We live in an age where everybody's clambering for an excuse. We want a back door. We want a way out. We want to pass the responsibility onto somebody else. You, you see it in courts of law all the time. Whenever somebody's cornered on the stand, they want to pass the buck to somebody else. It's their fault. What about what they've done? Whenever, whenever something politically gets highlighted, uh, what about what everybody else has done? We're not interested in what everybody else has done. And when you stand before God, God will not be interested in what everybody else has done, said, or anything. He will only be interested in you. As we work our way through the book of Romans, you will come to understand that every single person will stand before God and give an account of the life that they have lived. And then last week we looked, and we're going to continue now because Paul builds on this. Last week we looked at the fact that there's been a great exchange. Everybody's exchanged. It's called idolatry. Whenever there's an exchange, it's it fleshes itself out in idolatry. And whenever we think of idolatry, we think of these little wooden things that people put on their mantelpiece maybe, but that's not what idolatry necessarily is. Idolatry is when you are worshipping or you value anything or anybody in the place of God. That's idolatry. And Paul says everybody has exchanged the glory of God for what is created. It goes a little bit further today. We're, we're actually going to touch on the longest, longest passage in the Bible about homosexuality. And you know what? It's not that scary because what Paul wants to highlight 
is really doesn't have anything to do with homosexuality. He wants to highlight something else. But everybody's made an exchange. And idolatry is not just outside the walls of churches, but we're, we're seeing exchanges inside the walls of churches where now it's more important. Uh, if, if it's raining outside, we're not sure whether we're going to church and, and we place more importance on the temperature or, or how long the person preaches or, or how long the music is and all those things. But, but it doesn't stop there. And in fact, uh, to, so that nobody gets off the hook here, leadership in churches in particular have made some enormous exchanges. We've exchanged the real gospel from behind the pulpit for rubbish that sounds like you can have whatever you want. We've exchanged what's important here on a Sunday morning for how many people are sitting in the seats. If that's really what's important, it'll drive everything we do. It's not about what's important, it's about who's important. We need to make another exchange back Paul says, therefore, in light of all of this, here's the four scariest words. God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Next slide, please, Steve. This phrase, God gave them up, is... Best understood as God handing us over. I have a message for Australia, but I believe I have a message for individuals in this room. I believe I have a message for individuals outside this room. (laughs) But here's the message for Australia. Be very careful that we never get to the point where God does this. And that picture there, although it's humorous, just as an FYI, my father-in-law has done that. My father-in-law decided to prune the tree in the front yard. Yes, Levi remembers. And he put, the, he put the ladder on the branch and then cut the branch the ladder was on. But that's... <laughs> but the message is this, that if we, think, if we think God doesn't see our changes in marriage and how we value life with euthanasia, you see, our old people are not a hassle. They should be treasured. They should be treasured. Same with our young people and same with those that are unborn. But God gave them up and God handed them over. And we're going to look at the fact that this has happened before in history. But uh, Oscar Wilde says when, when the gods really want to punish us, they answer our prayers. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, it's like God allowing us to enjoy the horrible freedom that we have all demanded. We demand to be free. We, we demand to have life on our terms. We, we demand to be able to call marriage what we want to call marriage. And we now want to say life begins when we say life begins. And, and we want to give people an option to opt out of life whenever you want because, you know, you're costing us a lot of money. God forgive us. that he would ever get to the point where he would hand us over. The best way to understand handing over, uh, the best analogy I can give you is imagine for a moment a kayaker heading down a river, going with the flow of the current, and he's approaching some turbulent, turbulent rapids. And just as he gets to the head of these rapids, and these rapids are like the worst white water you've ever seen, just as he gets to the head of these rapids, there's like an arm that grabs hold of the kayak. 
Can I tell you that Australia right now and many people inside of that country are right at the head of those rapids right now. And God has got hold of the kayak. But if he ever does what these four words say here, we're in a lot of trouble. If Bill Shorten had got power in Australia, Christianity would look a lot different in five years. They don't tell you all the policies, by the way. Neither do the Greens. But this word handing over is, thank you Steve for the next one, this, this word handing over can become a very inconvenient truth for many of us because this is not an impersonal act of God. In fact, the Greek here is not just God releasing his hand because that's part of what it is. This is, this is not just God taking his hand off going, well, yeah, this is what you wanted. Imagine that kayaker for a moment. It's not just God taking his hand off the kayak, it's God grabbing hold of the kayak and thrusting you into the rapids. Now, Al Gore left Parliament with $3 million in the bank. Then he came up with something he called the inconvenient truth. He now has $300 million in the bank. Problem is, if that was truth, Australia would be underwater because apparently the polar ice caps were supposed to be melted by 2020. 2020 is less than a month away. But sometimes I want to introduce you today, and I only want to introduce you because uh, the book of Romans is going to expose it more, but I want to introduce you to uh, sometimes an inconvenient truth called the sovereignty of God. We're going to expose what that looks like in our lives, but the sovereignty of God is something to be rested upon and something to be absorbed. This is not God just simply taking his hands off. This is God exposing us to circumstances in our lives and sometimes the consequences of our actions, all for one goal, and that is spiritual reformation. Always God has one goal. And I want to give you a couple of examples this morning. And if for the two or three people that did read the pastor's comments, you got the greatest example this morning. Uh, how many people here know that song by the rivers of Babylon? Yeah, good song, eh? Yeah, I know all the, everyone wants to get up and do the... Yeah, you got the hula hoops and the, and, and the straw skirts. I, I know all that. Great song. But listen to the words for a moment. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, I'll explain about that in a moment, and, and we remembered Zion. Psalms 137. Beautiful, beautiful psalm. But it was actually the reflections of Israel sitting in Babylon. And what had happened was, uh, we touched on Jeremiah last week, but, but God has a message through Jeremiah for the people of God. He comes to the people of God and says, you guys are steeped in your idolatry. You are far removed from God. The king, you are the worst because you're facilitating this. And basically, Jeremiah says, look, if you guys don't do something, God's going to come on down and there's going to be some retribution here. Okay. And they all sit in the city of Israel. Sounds a little bit like Australia. It almost sounds a little bit like Australia in some respects. They sit in Israel and say, have a look at the height of the walls, Jeremiah. Have a look at the temple. God would never allow the temple to be destroyed. This is God's city. He's not going to let anybody sack these walls. As the smoke was rising off the walls, as the smoke was rising off the temple, and who was survived was being marched into Babylon, I wonder what they were now thinking. We are blessed in this nation. God has a hedge of protection around us. But read the book of Job, what happens when God releases that? 
The sovereignty of God means God answers to nobody outside of himself. The sovereignty of God means God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. If you want to know what God's going to do next, I'll tell you, whatever he wants. Because he's God. And if you were sold that man at the fall handed over all the power and authority to the enemy and now the enemy runs around doing what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, why he wants, that's a lie. It's not what the Bible teaches. Let me tell you, the, the enemy gets power to operate in two ways. God gives him permission, number one. Read the book of Job. He had no way of coming against Job. No way at all. God says to to the enemy, he says, what about my servant Job? And, and the enemy says, you've got a hedge of protection around him. What am I supposed to do? Nothing. Here's the second one. We give him permission. He can't do anything unless you allow him or God allows him. The victory at the cross was not a half victory. He's never had full reign. God, however, has full reign. Here's the inconvenient truth about the exile. We find Israel in exile. Place yourself in their shoes for a moment. This is where it gets a little bit inconvenient. You're miles away from home. You, maybe family members have been killed. You're sitting in a city now where uh, you don't know what it's going to look like in the future. All you know is Jeremiah told you to get comfortable because it's going to be at least 70 years in exile. You don't know what's going to happen under Nebuchadnezzar. You don't know what's going to happen next. You never know whether you'll go back home or what will happen. And sitting down by the rivers of Babylon was them deciding, you know what, Uh, this is the greatest thing that ever happened for Israel, was they decided, I don't care whether we're in Babylon or where we are, we're going to worship God. And they said, you will find us at the nearest piece of water and we will be sitting down reflecting on God. It's where we see the Pharisees begin. By the time we get to Jesus, they're distorted, but the Pharisees started in exile. Why? Because we want to uphold the law of God and we don't want the next generation to forget about it. So we're going to uphold it right here in Babylon. Israel learnt we will worship God wherever we are. Greatest thing that ever happened to them. But here's the inconvenient truth sometimes when you read Isaiah 45 and God says to Nebuchadnezzar, O Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. You see, God had been preparing Nebuchadnezzar to be an instrument of judgment on an apostate Israel. And as we begin to uncover these truths here, I want to speak this morning to the fact that there's probably people here this morning sitting here saying, there's three stages in these rapids. There's probably people here sitting going, you know what? I know I'm at the head of those rapids and I know God's got a hold of the kayak and I know that if I don't change my ways... I'm going to head up in those rapids. There's some people sitting here this morning that go, you know what, too late for me, champ. I'm in the middle of those rapids. My life looks like that exile. My life looks like, here's a little fellow we might know, Joseph. There's a picture of the sovereignty of God. This guy finds himself away from home in Egypt, betrayed by those closest to him. He finds himself in jail, wrongly accused. And then we get the story of the butcher baker and the candlestick maker. They come on in and they have dreams and he tries to get it. But all of that happens and he thinks he's a million miles away from God. And there's people in this room this morning that are saying, you know what, God feels like he's a thousand miles away and the heavens feel like brass. And every time I pray, it feels like my prayers are bouncing back to me. And I want you to know this, that... Just as God was with Israel in the exile, and just as God was in that prison cell with Joseph, he is with you. That's the truth of the sovereignty of God. 
If he thrusts you into the rapids, friends, he will take you out the other side. It is often when we are spat out the other side of the rapids that we look in the kayak and a lot of baggage has been lost along the way. There were three men under Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Not Abednego, that's a place in Victoria. Abednego. <laughs> and they wouldn't bow down and worship an image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And Nebuchadnezzar said, look, if you don't bow down and worship right now, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And just to make sure you get that I'm serious, I've turned it up three times hotter than I normally do. And these guys answered him and said, you know what? Because they understood the sovereignty of God, by the way. They said, you know what? God's able to... God's able to keep us out of the flames and he's able to rescue us from the furnace. But, but if not, there's three very powerful words. But if not, they said, you know what, we're going to worship God and let it be known to you, Nebuchadnezzar, that we will not bow down to your image. <laughs> and of course, we know the story. Three men were thrown into the furnace. But when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, he saw four. And there was one like the Son of God. And when they came out of that furnace... Not a hair on their head was singed, only the ropes that bound them were burnt. Israel was a different Israel after the Exodus. When Joseph was exalted to be the Prime Minister of Egypt, we now realise, we get it, when he's sitting there and every other person is starving to death and Israel wouldn't be here today, we realise God wanted you to become the Prime Minister of Egypt so you could save Israel. Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear, for God sent me here. Preach it, pastor. Preach it, pastor. Yeah, we hear you, pastor. But the sovereignty of God sounds like sometimes God thrusts us into the rapids and lets us go into the furnace so that when we come out, there's less ropes. Therefore, God gave them up or handed them over. May God never hand Australia over, by the way. Let's pray. God never hand Australia over. But he gave them up into the lusts of their hearts. And this word lust is now where we're going to approach. Uh, Paul wants to give us an example. The example will be homosexuality, but he uses others, by the way. But he wants to give us an example of what he's now trying to highlight called lusts. Or the best way to understand this word lusts is over-desires. They are over-desires. They are when good things become ultimate things. I'll, I'll describe all this in a moment. And something happens when, to our lives when that happens. But let's take a few examples. Sex is a good thing. And every married person only in the room said, Amen, Pastor. But sex is a good thing. But when it becomes an over-desire or it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes things like fornication. It becomes things like pornography. It becomes things like adultery. And it becomes things like homosexuality. We'll deal with that one in a moment. But here's some other good things that become ultimate things. Money is not a bad thing. But when money becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes something called greed. And food is not a bad thing, but when food becomes an over-desire, when it becomes an accelerated appetite, it becomes gluttony. Spiritual disciplines, here's a big one, Spiritual disciplines are not a bad thing. In fact, they're a necessary thing. But when they become the ultimate thing, 
they could become something called religion. Because they become the ultimate thing. It's an over-desire. Let me, let me explain for a moment. I'm not a mechanic. John Zwarren Kent, you can walk me through this, brother, if you can. Help me with this one. But here's the best way to understand. Everybody here probably drove here somehow this morning. Uh, my son rode his bike, which took him about three and a half hours. But, but most of us came here by, by motor vehicle. And when you get into a motor vehicle, the, the, the motor or the engine is like our heart. You know, it drives every other part of the vehicle. You know, the wheels turn, the gearbox moves, the differential, all of those things move in unison, but the motor drives it all. And that's the same as our heart, that's the same as our appetites, that's the same as our desires. And, you know, uh, for most people won't understand what I'm going to say next either. For those who drive a manual car, and everyone said, what is that? But for those who drive a manual vehicle, uh, you, you need to have a clutch and uh, most cars have a speedometer and a tachometer. The speedometer tells you how fast you're going, and if you're in the car with my daughter, it's always way too fast. But, if, but, but the, tachometer, the tachometer tells us how many revolutions you're putting on the motor. Brother John, help me out here. If those revolutions are far too far towards the seven or 8,000, we're in trouble after a little while, are we not? Absolutely. You see, the car was designed to rev at about 2,000 to 3,000. And if you rev it at seven or 8,000, that's what we call an over-desire. You're over-revving the engine, and things begin to happen when you over-rev the engine. Bearings shake loose. <laughs> Pistons. Piston rings begin to snap. Scratches in the bore begin to happen. And it breaks down the rest of the vehicle. Have you ever noticed that? Do you know if there's a problem with your motor, the vehicle doesn't go? Not unless you're Fred Flintstone, I know. But, <laughs> but here's another beautiful truth. You see, God promised under the new covenant that he'd give us all a new heart, new desires. And I want to tell you the story today about a 1974 Toyota Corona. First car I ever bought. After two weeks of owning that car, you can ask my wife because it terrifies her to think about it. The way I used to stop that car because it had no brakes was to gently go back through the gears and run it into the gutter. <laughs> you get away with it in Tasmania, you won't get away with it in Brisbane. But it was my first car and, and my boss who was working with the time, said, look, this can't go on, son. You've got to do something about this car. The brakes aren't working. Um, uh, when you pulled up at the lights, it blew that much smoke, you couldn't see the car behind you. <laughs> <laughs> something's wrong in the heart, John. Something's wrong in the heart. <laughs> Something, something's amiss. So I, I went round to the mechanic and I said, you know what? I said, this car... I said, just spend whatever you have to do. So he rings me up. He says, you know, you really need a new clutch. I'll redo all the brakes for you. I'm going to rebuild the motor. And then he rings me up again. And he says, you know, this is a two-litre car, Sean. He says, but by the time I bore it out to fix the problems in it, it's going to be about a 2.4. I said, brother, bore that baby out. <laughs> and that 1974 Corona had a brand new heart. She had a brand new motor from top to bottom, completely all the, everything was reworked. And now this 1974 Corona would overtake trucks and cars going up Spring Hill at 130, 140 kilometres an hour. And everyone's looking at the outside going, what? <laughs> Isn't that like us? God rebuilds the motor on the inside 
And then eventually we do the body work later on. It just works its way to the outside. Can I tell you, it, most problems we have are a desire problem. They're an over-revving problem. And by God's grace, he puts governors on the throttles of our lives so that we don't over-rev too much. Because what happens is when we over-rev, Paul's now going to show us what happens. It begins to destroy what's on the outside. Paul goes on and he says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves because here's another exchange. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. These are dishonourable passions or dishonourable desires and dishonourable appetites. It's a brokenness. When, when we see... When we see things like gender problems, there's a, there's a problem with identity. And these things, are, United Nations now recognises 32 different genders. And that was a few years ago. I think there could be a few more. Where did we get to the other 30? But there's a problem because we're broken. How does a... How does a four-year-old child wake up in the morning and go, I identify, a four-year-old boy wake up in the morning and say, I identify as a girl today, mum? You have to be taught that. It has to be ingrained. And the problem with things like gender issues and homosexuality and these other things, it's, it's not about the person. You have to remove the person from the problem, and the problem is we all need to be born again. Like that 1974 corona, we all need a new motor because we're blowing smoke at the lights and we can't pull up because there's no brakes. We've lost what it means to be completely born again and completely regenerated. Have a listen to what Paul has to say. Here's, here's what I, I want to bring this to a close shortly now. Natural relations, he, God gave them up to dishonourable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Thank you, Steve contrary to nature. I'm going to read the rest of verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Here's what the problem is. They are acting uh, contrary to nature. Now, for those that were here through our Intimacy and Marriage series in November, we had a great deal of fun. But we began to understand, I use the analogy of the fireplace. Who knows that in Queensland and northern New South Wales right now, fire is doing an enormous amount of damage. Enormous amount of damage. Fire is being, right now, it is being enormously destructive. It's destroying property. It's costing people their lives. And it's using up valuable water resources alone. But if you were to go to Tasmania in the middle of June and you walked into just about any house in Tasmania, you would find a wood heater in there. And this wood heater is a box. And inside that box, you can, you, you can burn that fire as hot as you like. And there's no destruction. In fact, it's the opposite. Because what happens is... Now that it's inside the wood heater, it's inside boundaries and it's inside parameters and it brings comfort and it brings warmth. Same fire, only difference is it's inside of boundaries. 
And so it is, this word nature means it's contrary to God's designed order. That's what the Greek is pointing to. So what is the problem with these lusts and these over-desires? Sex in itself is a good thing, yes, and, and food in itself is a good thing, but when they are taken out of those boundaries, when it's taken out of the fireplace, look what sex can do. Now we've got men in dishonorable passions, women in dishonorable passions. God, by the way, doesn't really have a list of, of, of sins that are worse than others, but if he did, homosexuality is not at the top. Adultery is. Because you're breaking a covenant. This isn't about the person. This, this isn't about an attack on people or people groups. This is about the, there is a problem inside of humanity where we need to be born again because we're acting outside of God's created order. Sexual immorality that Jesus talks about is the word porneia, and it is illicit sexual activity. Anything outside the boundaries of marriage. God's created order for all of these good things was marriage. Let's finish this up. Contrary to nature and the men likewise, but at the end of this we see receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And I want to make one thing very, very clear. This due penalty is the consequences of the sinful actions of those. Now, there are, there are consequences for homosexual activity. There are, there are consequences for those that have many, 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 many relationships outside of marriage. There's consequences for that. There can be huge physical consequences for that. But sin has consequences. And I would be lying to you if I said that that doesn't apply to all of us. I want to use the example of David and Bathsheba. David, we know what happens with David and Bathsheba. He sends her husband into battle so that he can be killed, so that he can have Bathsheba for himself. And when it all gets exposed by the prophet Nathan and all of that, Israel want to lynch him as king, and he runs to the temple, and we have Psalms 51, creating me a clean heart, O God. And he repents, and God forgives him. Please hear me, God forgave David on that day, completely forgiven of his sin. But David knew trouble in his house from that time on. He had a baby that passed away. He had problems uh, underneath him when it came to leadership. He had problems in his own family when his son wanted to abdicate his throne for him. There are consequences for our actions. Paul says everything that we're seeing in secular society so often is a consequence or it's the due penalty of people acting outside of God's order. What happens if you light a fire right now out in the bush in Queensland? There are consequences for that. Because it's outside of where it was designed to be. So many people with over-desires get to the top of their mountain and they realise when they get there that everything I've been climbing for wasn't worth it in the first place. I've got here and, and now, for those that were here for the Ecclesiastes series, we looked, at, we looked at these things. But Tim Keller gives the example, he lives in Manhattan, and he gives an example of a lady that he knows quite well that runs a cafe there, and people come to Manhattan because they want to look for their big break in Hollywood. 
And she says, you know, she says, a lot of people that you now see on the stage and on the screen, she says, they're frequented of my cafe. And she said, I knew all of these people when they came here and they were nothing. She said, I knew them when they were here working three jobs, waiting for their big break. And she said, they were wonderful people. She said, they had a, they had a drive and they had an energy. She said, but something happens when they get their big break. And Tim Keller said to her, he said, what happens? She says, they change. And she says, these wonderful soft people now are hard and callous. These joyous people that have a drive and an energy now are depressed. It's like revving at seven or 8,000 revs, you're going to empty the fuel tank. Here's the greatest example, Robin Williams, one of my most favourite actors. He revved at far too, too high for far too long, and when his tank ran out, the world reads of a tragedy. Because what happens is they get to the top of the mountain, everything they've worked for, they think, I'm going to get to the top of the mountain, I'm going to have all the money I want, I'm going to have all the fame I want, I'm going to have all the success I've ever wanted. That's all I want. And when they get there, they realise this is just an empty barrel. And I want to ask everybody here this morning, what mountain are you climbing? Because, as I shared at the men's breakfast, But 2,000 years ago, Jesus took 12 men up a mountain and he left nine and he took three with him. And those three men witnessed a different Jesus. The word they use is transfigured or metamorpho in the Greek, which means basically the best way to understand is it goes from caterpillar to butterfly. Uh, Here's this Jesus that we've walked with for nearly three years now, but the Jesus I see before my eyes is somebody so glorious. It changed their life. It was so wonderful that Peter said, let's build some tents here, Lord, because I never want to come back to hell. And friends, I want to ask you today, if you're going to over-desire, if you're going to run at 7,000 revs, you have to be going up the right mountain. It's okay to have over-desires as long as you're desiring God. And I want to encourage everybody here to climb your mountain in God because it will change your life. I want to ask three questions as, I, as we close now. If God answered your prayers right now, what would it look like? If God, if God came to you right now and said, I'm going to give you the number one item on your prayer list, what is that? For some of us, we might have a new car. For some of us, we might have a new house. For some of us, we might have a new job. For some of us, we might have many different things, a new relationship, many different things. But... You see, the gospel reorientates your prayer list. I want to ask, do you feel like you're in exile here today? Because there's people here today that would probably put their hands up and say, you know what, I feel like I'm in exile. And, and are you revving far too high in your desires? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.